Well, I hope everybody's having a great week. I have found a way to survive since I left the house on less than 10% phone battery, and I still have 5% left. So it's got to get me till I get home. That way I know there's no crisis because yours truly, normally I keep a phone charger in my backpack for such times, but I forgot that today. So, say what? But I do have a whiteboard tonight. We'll see if we end up using it tonight. I'm not sure. We'll find out. It'll come at some point. All right, we're going to jump back into uh, to Revelation chapter 7. If you remember last week, we started walking through the seal judgments. You've got in chapters 4 and 5, uh, John is caught up in spirit up into heaven, and he begins to see, uh, chapter 4, this incredible reality of of God Almighty, uh, specifically looking in it, the, the person of the Father sitting enthroned and, and watching this, uh, this heavenly worship, uh, time of worship. And then in that, uh, they come forward, who's worthy? to? He sees a scroll that's written on it front and back, and who's worthy to open this scroll? We've seen imagery of this kind of scroll before, back in Daniel, where the, the Lord's written out everything on it. And, and who's, who's worthy to open the seven seals? And you remember, there's, they search all of heaven, no one. They search all of earth, no one. They search all of the dead, no one. And John becomes disheartened, and then, then one of the elders says, stop, look, and he sees the lamb standing, one is though slain. And obviously, we know that to be Jesus. And then Jesus, there's a, there's a chorus of worship for Jesus. And then when we moved in last week to chapter 6, we begin watching as Jesus opens each one of the seals. And when you get to the end of chapter 6, he opens the sixth seal where terror is unleashed on the earth and those on the earth recognize that the, the day of the Lord has come and they want everything to do to hide from the glory of God and they make the statement, who can stand before him? And for the sake of time last week, we kind of jumped and didn't really walk through all of chapter 7, but simply pointed out that if chapter 6 ends on this question, before the glory and judgment of God, who can stand? Chapter 7 answers it. It's those who've taken themselves and washed their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And, and we'll come back over that tonight. But, we, but we, we kind of end it out there on this positive note. But we're going to walk back through chapter 7 in more detail. So look with me. Chapter 6 ends, for the great day of the wrath has come. Who is able to stand? And it says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any other tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, be from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, just pause for a moment. So we've made it through six of the seals being opened. We've begun to see the turbulence, the reality of what is taking place on earth. And all of a sudden, there's this interlude. There's this interlude where John sees uh, four angels holding back the winds of the earth. These four angels, we're told at some point, are going to have the responsibility to bring a destruction to the earth beyond what has already been inflicted under the seals. And if, if you read ahead in Revelation, there's a lot more destruction to come upon the earth. We haven't even really touched the bulk of the destruction that is to come. 
You have this fifth angel comes out of the east and he says, wait, don't you let go. Keep restraining the judgment that you're going to that you're going to unleash until until we seal we seal those of the Lord our God. We seal them on their foreheads. We've got to take care of this issue. And, and you, you remember, I mentioned it last week, but when we talk about sealing something, there's, there's several ideas that, that come to that. Sealing is the equivalent of possession. It's the equivalent of protection. Those who are sealed cannot subsequently be unsealed. Once you are marked... By the mark of God, you're, you're marked forever. Scripture speaks in Ephesians chapter 1 about the Holy Spirit sealed us. That part of the assurance of salvation. How do you really know you're saved? Well, does the Holy Spirit of God, is He residing within you? Because the Holy Spirit can only come in and enter someone who's truly saved. He is the source of that salvation. And when He enters, He seals the whole permanently and marks it as a possession of the Lord. And there's no, there's no coming out. It's a mark of possession. In that way, you can think, uh, though certainly far less glorious, you can think in the sense of the branding of a farm animal. That brand is, is a seal to say, whom does that animal belong to? We, and it's fitting imagery, who are sheep, are sealed, are branded permanently as belonging to not just any shepherd, but the good shepherd, the great shepherd. There is a protection. There is a protection. We'll see as this plays out in the weeks to come. There is a protection for those whom are sealed. Uh, One of the most obvious, if you're familiar, is at some point down the line here in Revelation, those who are not sealed, they're going to be tempted with another mark, the mark of the beast, and they will take it, and it's a sign of their permanent destruction. Well, who are the ones who don't take the mark? There's only two groups, the mark of the beast, the sealed of God, why do the sealed not? Because they're sealed. So there is a protection that we will see play out there. And so, and, 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 you'll, and, and in terms of, uh, you'll remember, at some point we, I will come back and we'll walk through, how does, all this, how does all this fit? Let's map it out on a timeline. But I think initially walking through it, it's better to just walk through and understand each, each part, what's taking place and then come back and put it in a timeline. This does seem to happen, and it's in there in the text. There is a coming further wrath and judgment of God, and this happens prior to that. We do know that much, because he tells the angels, hey, don't, don't unleash don't unleash your judgments yet. We've got to go and seal. And then look what it says. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now pay careful attention as we read through it. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Pardon my R's as W's. I'm sounding like my daughter. Twibe. Um, that's how she would pronounce it. Now, read through it. So 144,000, he proceeds to name off 12 tribes of Israel and say 12,000 from each of those tribes. And so uh, naturally, there's, there's several questions we've got to answer as, as we come to this and not just gloss over it. Who are these 144,000? That's a question. 
Another question is, is the number 144,000 literal only 144,000 people on the dot? Is it approximate? Is it symbolic? Is there something? Uh, uh, If you paid attention closely, did you notice not all 12 tribes of Israel are in that list? One one has the name switched out. Uh, Ephraim is missing. Ephraim, we know, is the son of Joseph, and so his father's name is placed there, which you might go, okay, well, the two tribes, uh, but, but Manasseh, his brother, is still indicated. Well, what's that? Dan is missing. Why is Dan missing? So there's a lot of questions that come up, and we didn't even scratch at those last week. So there's a variety of thoughts out there, and I won't even remotely touch on all of them. Uh, one would be, or these are the 144,000 of Jehovah's Witness who reign in heaven. Well, we know that that's false. That would be a cultish idea, not true. Uh, some would say these are select what we'd call Sabbatarians, those who honor and worship, the, honor the, the, the Sabbath day of God, the seventh day of the week is worship. Well, it's not that. You can't make a case there. Here's where most are going to fall. There would be those who would see this 144,000 of Israel as, re, as a reference to the church, to the bride of Christ. And so in this sense, it's a reference to those all of believers uh, throughout all time, or some might say those who would come to faith in, in Christ during the midst of the seven years of tribulation. Uh, those who would hold this opinion would be of a theological persuasion that uh, when Jesus came and He died on the cross and He rose from the grave and He fulfilled the old covenant and He ushered in the new covenant, God's purpose for Israel's done, that, that the new Israel is the church. The, the opposing view of that would be, this is referring to 100, again, we don't know what 144 is yet, but when we're talking about 144,000 of Israel, that we're talking about Israel. We're talking about people who are biologically, ethnically Jews, and not therefore symbolic for, I mean, I, as far as I know, I'm as Gentile as Gentile can come. All my roots trace back to Celtic stuff, so uh, I'm not included in that. Now, here's the challenge. When you walk through Scripture, there does seem to be a distinction between Israel and the church, while at the same time, occasionally, the church certainly takes, uh, takes the place in terms of witness that Israel once was to occupy. And so there's a sense in which sometimes the church does seem to be, in a sense, a, a new kind of Israel, but, but not the same. You do realize we're not the same. Israel was a true theocracy that had political and government ramifications. The church is not that. And in fact, historically, when the church has attempted to replicate that, it has done much harm and great damage to the witness of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back and read the history of the church in Europe. And how many faithful believers were put to death by the church in the name of the state? So the church is not a theocracy. In fact, if you really play out that early church, they were as far from having any kind of government power uh, in a way that none of us in, in our country where you've got the right to vote can even fathom what that kind of role would be like. So who then are these? We've got an extreme position. There is, Israel's done. This is the church. We've got an extreme, these, are, these are Jews. We've, we've got in Scripture the reality of some. Well, let's just go, go back for a second here. Uh, I'm going to move. I'm going to flip fast. So you, you can keep welcome to keep up. You can also just write them down. I'll repeat the references. But listen to Genesis chapter 12. 
Genesis chapter 12 is the origin of Israel. Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, you can flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. When your days, this is God speaking with, with David. Uh, uh, verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. You drop down to verse 12. When, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish my throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. Uh, and you go on down at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be in, endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So some of this, and there is referencing Solomon as biological son. Some of this is passing far over Solomon to the descendant who would come of his line, whose throne will never end. The root of David, the true root of Jesse, the son of David, Jesus. When you come into Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not a covenant which I make to their fathers today. I, I, took them out by the, I took them by the hand, brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on my heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Notice what he says. There is an old covenant I made with Israel, and they messed it up. But there's coming a day when I will make a new covenant with Israel, and it's going to fix the problem. Well, this was written in the Old Testament to a thoroughly Jewish Israel. It's kind of hard to stretch that one, and I know some that do, and there's some that do, and I respect them, so I'm not trying to bash, but this would seem to imply there, there is something still for Israel. There is still a role for Israel to play in the new covenant. Uh, Jesus, Matthew chapter 19 Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, verse 27, Peter said, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit upon his glorious throne, you shall sit upon, you shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, is that symbolic or is that literal? Seems to more, especially when you go into Revelation and, and you look at the New Jerusalem, it's... Its foundation stones are the 12 apostles, but its gates are the 12 tribes. There seems to be an element both of Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel and New Testament, New Covenant Church. Not only this, but uh, notice the book of... Well, Go with me to Romans. By no means are we going to walk through it thoroughly. I'll just come here to the end. But when, when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he's dealing with a group of believers that, that have both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And he's walking through really a defense of the gospel. And when he gets to chapter 9, 
10 and 11, essentially the question becomes, well, this is great, Paul. You're walking us through this gospel where salvation has always been by faith, and you've played it, you've shown us with Abraham, you've walked through the, the, why salvation by grace through faith is superior to salvation by works of the law. You've answered the question, well, what was the purpose of the law? You've shown how trying to be righteous under the law is enslavement. You've taught us what life in the Spirit looks like, the life of freedom. So then the question becomes, so, so what about Israel? What about God's actual people? Because by and large, they've all rejected Him. What kind of God's own people reject Him? And he walks through an argument and, and walks through and answers that. But notice what he says in verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. I don't want you uninformed, brethren, but to be informed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved, for just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies of your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's uh, like Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. And then he goes on, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom. Notice what he says, that there's currently a partial hardening of Israel, that, that there's, there are Jews who believe in Jesus as Messiah even to this day. But overall, there's a hardening. And what's happened in that hardening? We know from the book of Acts that in that hardening, the gospel took a turn and it spread into all the Gentile world. And he says it. There's been a partial hardening of, of Israel so until the time of the Gentiles has reached its fullness, which would imply, and then he says, and then all Israel will be saved. So on the basis of a lot of this information, here's what I would tell you in trying to keep it succinct and short because there's more we got to cover tonight. When it talks about the 144,000 of God who are sealed here, it is talking about people who are biologically, ethnically Jewish. That at some point in the tribulation, there is a turning, a, a far larger turning than there has ever been of the Jewish people to God for salvation. That the Jesus who they now ridicule as a false Messiah and pretender, they will cry out, now, when does this fall in the tribulation? Uh, based on what we've seen in Daniel about the 70th seven, about halfway through the seven years, the, the, the Antichrist who comes and makes a covenant with the people of God and then turns and pours out the full wrath of Satan upon the Jewish people. Sometime after that, before the return of Christ, there will be this turning, this sealing, this turning of Jews to Christ. Now, so first question, who are they? I personally land, um, land strong that they are literal Jewish people, especially, drop with me to verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, from all tribes, people. He seems to specify, I saw 144,000 coming out of Israel and then I saw a multitude with no number of every people, tongue, and tribe. So there seems to be a distinction between those, so these are Jewish people. Now, what do you do with 144,000? Is it literal? Is it approximate? Is it symbolic? There's some will say it was symbolic, the fact that 12,000 out of 12 tribes, that there's a fullness, the totality of those who, who remain, uh, Jews who, who are surviving at that point will turn. 
What's the real answer? The full answer is any one of us who tells you with absolute certainty this is what it is, you probably ought to question slightly. (laughs) What it does seem to imply is that there will be a clear, large turning. Is it all the Jews who are left? I don't know if it's all the Jews who are left, but it's certainly going to be a mass turning of those who are Jews to Christ. God is going to fulfill His covenant. There's all sorts of promises about the return of God and the setting up of His kingdom to Israel in the Old Testament. And they can't, in some ways, you can't fulfill all of them if there's not some point a returning of the Jews to the one true God, their God, who picked them from Genesis 12 through Abraham. So what is the number referring to? I, I think it's probably bigger than just a literal 144,000 on the dock. But I can't tell you with absolute certainty it'll for sure be at least 144,000. I can tell you that. But beyond that, um, there's a variety of theories, but we will see it and know it when it's there. For, honestly, to try to say, thus say it and no more at this point in my study would be for me to violate what I feel Paul says, which is don't engage in needless speculation and endless debates. So you notice there were some tribes missing. Now here's where there's a lot of interesting theories. We'll start with Ephraim, right? If you remember, when you actually read the list of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, it always will mess with you, because if you'll ever take time to count, you'll find there's 13 tribes. There's 12 tribal allotments of land, but somehow our mind skips over the fact that there's another tribe who didn't get any land, the Levites. Now, we don't forget the Levites, because they're all over, they're working, they're the priests, they're but when you go through it, we just, for whatever reason, it's, we, oh, the 12 tribes, and then when you read the list, it's actually 13. Well, why is that? Well, Joseph, because of Joseph's character, because of his position, when, when the tribal blessings go out, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, each are given tribal allotment of land. So instead of there just being, here's the tribal allotment of Joseph, instead, his two sons each get a tribal allotment. Hence, there's 12 tribal allotments of land, but in the list... So technically, there are only 12 tribes. We're not playing weird games. There are 12 tribes. Joseph is a tribe. But for the sake of accounting, his two sons both get distinguished and acknowledged alongside the uh, the other 11 tribes whose sons don't get that distinction. Because obviously, Joseph plays a unique and key part. He's a pivotal figure. Uh, in in the lead up in the end of the end of um, the end of Genesis and the story of how God's going to take the people of God the the people Abraham Isaac Jacob how God's going to take what was according to the book of Exodus about I remember the number correct about seventy people in all and bring them down out of nomadic living bring them down to Egypt under the protection of the mightiest. Uh, empire in the world. They're going to flourish like mosquitoes in a swamp. They're going to multiply, and at some point it will become hard for them, in which they will cry out, God will rescue them. The, the time of the cinema of the Amorites, uh, who occupy the land of, of Canaan, will come to a head, and God will then bring his people out of Egypt into the land, and you, and you walk on down. Joseph plays a key. He is a, the key figure in all of that, because he's going to be the connector between uh, them coming to Egypt and their protection and and what is what is there. So why is Ephraim not named and Manasseh named? Why is Dan not named? Uh, there are a variety of theories. Both Dan and Ephraim. Uh, both Dan is the first of the tribes to really sell out to idolatry in the Old Testament. 
Ephraim's not far behind. It's common if you read some of the prophetic literature to hear Ephraim's idolatry. Ephraim becomes a name to symbolize all of the northern, uh, when the kingdom splits, all of the northern kingdom of Israel, which was actually uh, 10 of the tribes plus any Levites that stayed. It's possible that due to their idolatry, they were, they were demarked out in this list. This list is different. You'll notice who's the first name? Judah. Trivia. Who's the oldest son of Jacob? Reuben, not Judah. Well, why is Judah first? Well, because Judah is obviously, that one's a little easier. Judah's the Messianic tribe, so they're going to trump birth order. And you notice who's after Judah? Well, Reuben, the first, the first part. By the way, when I was in college, my favorite professor, or one of my top favorite professors, he uh, he taught Old Testament uh, survey, and, and in his class, one of the largest classes, uh, everyone, every freshman had to take it. In that class, he would take the class roster, and he would break us up percentage-wise based on the size of the, the 12 tribes. And so, you know, so if, if it was a bigger tribe, more of the class would be that, where I think like in our class, Dan was the smallest, so out of a class of 98, only two people were in the tribe of Dan. But he would break us up, and we all had to have a... Um, we all had to sit together for the. Re- he didn't do it initially. We did it once you got to the end of Genesis. So it was about two weeks into class, and then we had to sit with our tribe the entire rest of the semester. And any time that we would read scripture and that tribe was named, we had to have a call sign that we'd shout out. So I was part of Reuben. So every time he said Reuben, we had to shout out sandwich. And anyway, so I can't, I can't read, I can't read a list like that and not have that run through my mind of. All right, who's saying sandwich? And anyways, so it was, it was fun. It was a neat deal. Dr. Mullen's one of my favorite. Now, there's a variety of theories. Dan, Genesis 20, uh, 49, when, when Jacob's giving his blessing to all the different, interestingly enough, Dan is described as being a serpent in the hills of his people. Uh, there, are, uh, there are both Jewish scholars as well as some of the early church fathers that believe Dan is removed from this list because out of the tribe of Dan, the Antichrist comes. That just as the Christ comes out of the tribe of Judah, so the Antichrist comes out of the tribe of Dan. Out of Christ comes the tribe loyal to the Davidic king. Out of the tribe who is known for their idolatry comes. Is it possible? It's possible. At the same time, I could take you to some Old Testament and New Testament passages that seem to imply all 12 of the tribes are there at the end. Some have advocated that possibly Dan got so small that eventually it just died out. So the reason it's not there is there are no more surviving members. Because remember, if, if you are, uh, to be able to trace as a Jew your history back is, is a challenge. Uh, the, the Jews that occupied the, the land of Israel until Rome came and leveled it in 70 AD, remember, those are primarily out of three tribes. Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites that remained loyal. The other tribes were conquered by Assyria in 722 BC, and they were shipped all over the world, and they don't have those connections to trace back their heritage. So, so some go, well, maybe Dan's so small it's died out. Maybe Dan's just gotten lumped in, uh, lumped in with um, Dan's gotten lumped in with Naphtali, uh, Naphtali uh, because um, because they are both of the same the same mother. Uh, There's a variety of thoughts out there as to their exclusion. Certainly the thought about the Antichrist coming out of Dan is very fascinating and provides a certain level of appeal. Can I tell you with absolute certainty why they are 
numbered this way or why they are listed this way and not another, I would be lying to you in my conscience with, with academic integrity if I told you I could tell you with absolute certainty. Now, are there people I respect who will swear by their very life breath, this is what it is? Yes. So I'm not trying to cast shade at anybody, just simply saying uh, the total reason of why it's there, you can make a good case in a lot of different ways, and we will just have to wait and see, in my opinion. You can feel free to disagree with me, um, but it is interesting, certainly, to see that both Jewish scholars in the early church and spend, and in the, even the imagery of Genesis 49, why is a tribe compared to a serpent when there's a clear image of who's the serpent all throughout Scripture? It's Satan. And even in Revelation, it'll say that. So there, there's interesting things there. But nonetheless, coming back to the text, here's what we see. He looks out, he sees the angels holding back some aspects of judgment upon the world. The reason they're holding it out is because God's going to go and seal, send an angel to seal, to protect, to claim ownership over a people. Out of that, you see a, a mass turning of Jews uh, in faith to the Messiah. We know this is going to happen in the latter half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And very likely, and just give you kind of my personal opinion, since in the last half of that tribulation, there is actual wrath and judgment of God poured out, I think very likely this turning is going to happen very quickly after the Antichrist breaks the peace covenant. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see, I mean, you imagine today, just imagine with me, in our world, you have a, a, a political player step on the scene who marches into one of the most volatile regions of the world and says, hey, I've got a solution for the Jews and the Arabs in the Holy Land. Not only that, but I've got a solution to take Iran and all of their hostility and make them shake hands. I don't know if you caught this week, there was a, the Israel, I think the Israel uh, uh, Minister of Affairs to the UN, he was escorted out because in protest when the Prime Minister of Iran got up to speak at the UN, he got up and Right? There's unbelievable hostility. And not hostility like Aggie Longhorn hostility. Hostility like we want to obliterate every last one of you from the face of existence. Can you imagine someone step on to where all these people get along? Can you imagine where someone steps on and somehow creates some kind of an agreement where the Jews can rebuild the temple on one of the three sacred sites of Islam? I mean, you're, you're talking about a level of suave the world has never seen before. Man, the people of Israel will buy in hook, line, and sinker, as will the rest of the world, by the way. Or most of the rest of the world. We'll come back to that. Not tonight, but another time. This is going to seem like their best friend, according to Daniel. And then three and a half years in, Daniel uses it. Jesus uses it in Matthew 24. This ruler will commit the abomination of desolation in the temple and will reign tribulation upon the Jewish people in a way that has never been seen. And not only that, but it'll extend out to the rest of the world. Now process that with me for a second. All of us in this room, and most of us, most of you in this room are going to have a better knowledge because you're a little older and know your history better. You know how bad World War II was for the Jews. Let's not downplay. I've been to actual concentration camps. Forget the museum in D.C. I've been to the real place. I've stood in the real gas chambers. It is wicked. And it doesn't all compare to what the Antichrist is going to do. 
I think somewhere in that moment, this turning of, of the 144,000 to Christ, it's going to happen sometime after that, but prior to the rest of God's judgment poured out in the last three and a half years. So somewhere, that's why I just, by default, it has to be somewhere. Now, everything I just told you right there, that is my opinion and understanding of what's in Scripture. So take that and do with it what you will. But you see this, and I think, and you probably say, well, why, why is there a big deal about this? Well, ultimately, one of the aspects is that should stand out to all of us. God made a covenant with the people of Israel. Part of that covenant was an eternal home. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant at Sinai. He made a covenant with David. And God never leaves any drop of his covenant unfulfilled. And the very, his very own people who turned and shouted, crucify, will in fact to the glory of God one day turn and shout, save. Why? Because God wins. Not Satan, not the world, not God wins. And his word doesn't fail, period. And that's true, Jew or Gentile. Male or female, slave or free. And so out of this, goodness, I've taken way more time on that than I intended, but that's all right. Out of this then, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. So I looked out and I saw, I saw a multitude you can't ascribe a number to. And that multitude was comprised of every, every people, every people group, every ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity shared. I, I looked out, and by the way, that's a definition. If you want to know how many, there's the, the ranges in the world today. The numbers will tell you there's anywhere from 12, uh, the best estimates are 12 to uh, 17,000 people groups in the world today. The United States alone is comprised of 522 people groups. It says, I looked out and I saw from these people groups a number, and they were clothed in white with palm branches. They were clothed in garments of righteousness, of victory. They, they had palm branches, signs of joy. Of course, we've seen the palm branches before. Uh, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, except this time, Hosanna, Hosanna, and Hosanna in the highest doesn't, set, doesn't five days later lead to crucify. This time, it is total victory. Total vindication. And this, this people, they cry out, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and, and their praise for the salvation of God. All of a sudden, it begins to spur on a massive cr uh, a display of worship in heaven. Uh, the angels who are standing around the throne, the elders, the four living creatures, all of a sudden seeing and hearing the cry of praise from this people, they all prostrate themselves before God and worship. It's so stirring, the entirety of heaven gets caught into this moment, seeing those who've been saved by Jesus Christ declare His glory. It makes you think, remember that statement in 1 Peter when it talks about our salvation, and it says that what you and I have in Christ now, even though we've not experienced all of it in full yet, what you and I possess in Christ now, at the moment of salvation, is the stuff that these angels who are morally pure, whose glory is such we would, and I'm not trying to be, be youth pastory, but we would fall on our face and pee in our pants in terror if one showed up. But they wish 
They could get a quick five-second peek through the crack of mama's door where the Christmas presents are stored at what you and I have right now in Christ. They are spurred to worship. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. And it says, one of the elders answered and said to John, who, who are these, these who are clothed in the white robes? Who are they and where do they come from? John knows a rhetorical question when he's asked one. He says, my Lord, now not my Lord, like my Lord as in Lord Jesus, but hey, you're clearly, you, you who asked me, you've got a little bit more power and knowledge than me, so I'm acknowledging you're, 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 you're a higher pay grade at this moment. Maybe put this way, well, Dr. Elder, you know, you tell me. And he said to him, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. He will spread his dwelling place over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb will be in the center of the throne. The Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He says, who are these? He said, well, you know. And he says, now these are the ones who've come out. So we're given an identity. This, this multitude, these are those who've come out of the great tribulation. Now that implies something to us for a second. Now understand, there is a sense in which all of us are going to be clothed in white, waving palm branches, praising... But here he says specifically this group that he saw came out of the Great Tribulation, which would imply these are people that have come to faith in Christ during the seven years of tribulation on earth. Even in the years where Satan's greatest power is unleashed on earth, salvation still wins. People still come to faith in Christ. In fact, not just any people come to faith in Christ, but by the end of it, every single people group has had someone come to faith in Christ. These have come out of the great tribulation. It says they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are, these are Gentile believers who have come to faith, and implications are many of them, uh, many of them were slaughtered. Remember the things we saw last week with the horsemen? Man will turn against man. Massive warfare. You will see antagonism against Christianity. There will be famine. A quarter of the population will, be, will, will die due, due as, as, as the result of famine and beast. And man, th these are people who have come to faith in Christ and they have died in the tribulation. These are Gentile believers who have, who have paid the price. And, and, and notice, notice that the cry in the core of their salvation... Notice that the cry is salvation to our God. Notice, here are, if we want to use this term, many of these will be martyrs. Notice, they're not there in heaven because of their faithfulness. They're not there in heaven because they paid the ultimate price. They're not there in, in, in heaven because they were willing to give their life. They're not there in heaven because they endured to the end. They're not there in heaven because they joined. They're there in heaven because they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. So I want to be always clear, very, very clear theologically. 
No one is saved by their zealousness for Jesus. No one is saved because of the lineage of their family. You think you've got a lineage? Stack it up against mine. I don't know many people that are fifth generation pastors who can trace a Christian lineage back to the 16th century. And I'm not saying that to pat me on the back. I'm telling you, you want to stack a Christian lineage up, I've got one to play. And it doesn't do squat to get me before Jesus. Now, doesn't mean it didn't have an impact on me coming to Jesus. Don't neglect, that's different. That's a different conversation, family legacy. But in terms of me being right with God, it doesn't weigh at all. God doesn't look at me and go, well, I loved your grandfather, I loved your father, so you know what, you just don't, I, I'm just going to take you too. I, I, I got to respond to Jesus about my own sin. And vice versa and on down. It doesn't, say, uh, it doesn't say that knowledge, powerful knowledge, says specifically that these people were washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is only one exclusive way to salvation. I could take you, and I have a bunch written down, but for the sake of the time, we won't, we won't get there tonight. I could walk you through Hebrews. I could walk you through statements in 1 Peter. I could take you to Romans 3. I could take you over to 1 John 4. We could walk back through all of Leviticus. You will discover that there cannot be forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. You will discover that, that this is the basis of the sacrificial system, that animals pouring out their blood, uh, that, that doesn't actually do anything to, to remove the sin, that there's a, a more precious, more perfect blood that has to be applied, that that precious blood, 1 Peter, came from a lamb who was spotless, a lamb who was slaughtered, Revelation 5, but risen forevermore. How does a person get the white robe? They've got to be washed in the blood. How does a person get washed in the blood? When in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that they in fact by nature are a sinner born in rebellion outside of a relationship with God, and the only way they can be saved is for the real person, Jesus Christ, to apply the real work of the life He lived and the death that He died to them. Not because they deserve it, they don't deserve it. And not because one day they'll, they'll, they'll earn enough to be worthy of it. We'll never earn enough to be worthy. There will never be a point when we are ever worthy of what we've been given in Christ. Ever. We'll spend all eternity being morally perfect, worshiping Jesus, and still never be worthy of what we were given. And if you go, well, that kind of hurts, Pastor. Yes! Part of salvation is dying to self. That's why the proud can't get over the stumbling block. God saves whom? Not the proud, but the humble. The ones that go, I don't have it. And the reason I harp this so hard is because in our country, where we have lots of different theological variations running around saying church, there are those who say, oh, Jesus saves, but you must be baptized. Listen, Jesus does save, and you should be baptized, but not because baptism saves you. But there are denominations that say that. There are denominations that you, you ask somebody, well, when did you come to faith in Christ? Well, I was sprinkled as an infant. That's great. When did you come to faith in Christ? 
Sprinkling, baptism of infants, by the way, isn't in Scripture. And it doesn't do anything to save someone. Well, I was born in a Christian family. doesn't save you. Part of the reason I harp over and 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 over again is just because you think Jesus is great. If you've never come to faith in Christ via repentance, you have every reason to say, Lord, do I really know you? Because it's real clear. Jesus said there's going to come a day and people are going to come in front of me and they're going to say, Lord... I prophesied in your name. I served in your name. Let me read. I went on mission trips in your name. I taught Sunday school in your name. I did a mill train in your name. I did all sorts of stuff in your name, Jesus. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because your faith was in your work and not a person alive will be saved by the amount of work they do for Jesus. No, in fact, it's the opposite. True work for Jesus flows out of salvation that is by grace received through faith. That's how our rope. You know what that means? That means when you as a believer start to feel grime. I just, I just don't measure up before God. I just, man, how can I even go before him today? Great. You know what? Yes. On my best day as a Christian, I still don't measure up in my righteousness, which is why part of the gospel is not just being saved. It's how I lived as a saved person, by resting in faith and the fact that, you know what, today, Today may be the best day you've had. Today may be the worst day you've ever had. You may have cursed out five drivers for cutting you off on the, on the freeway because everyone's looking at their phones. By the way, I, I personally think if you don't know where you're going, if you can't drive without looking at your phone for the directions, you shouldn't be allowed to drive anymore. We used to be able to do it with maps that could take up the whole windshield. And somehow this thing messes us even more. Here's my point. If you are in Christ, you're going to have good days and bad days. On your bad days, when you're soft enough of heart to sense the Spirit's overwhelming conviction, you're going to feel kind of ashamed of that. And the enemy's going to come in and whisper, how dare you go approach Jesus? You're not worthy of that. And in one sense, because the enemy usually tells things that are partly true, he's right. I'm not worthy of that. But I don't go before Jesus on the basis of my righteousness. I go before Jesus on the basis of his. Because I'm not standing before Jesus in my sin. I'm standing before Jesus in his righteousness. Which means with boldness and confidence, like a little child running to their daddy, I run into the throne for grace and mercy in time of need. Because the only way we are made right with God is through the blood of the Lamb. We don't move past it. We just grow deeper in it for all eternity. And I want to be clear on it over and over and over again because there is so much misinformation that has piled out there. And so here's what it says. It says, these are those who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes with lamb, made them white in the blood of the lamb. So we're going to pause there. There's actually something else embedded in that part of the text. We'll just have to pick up with it next week. I want to make sure to not move past that I think is vital for us to understand and understanding the heart of God and the whole message of Scripture, but we will just pick up there next week and just tonight rejoice that if in fact you are in Christ, you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And there is no possible better position to be in. And the great news is you're sealed forever by the Holy Spirit. And He will preserve you in your good days and your bad days, in your high days and your low days. 
As one person said, the very trials and tribulations that drive us to tears in this world will be the very things that around the throne of God we worship Him for in our salvation. These glorious days are coming. So may we rejoice in the goodness and greatness of who He is. Let me pray. Um, look, I'm being so good. 6.55, we're getting out right on time. And uh, appreciate everybody being here. We will jump back in to uh, the seven letters this Sunday with the church in Thyatira, which is a pretty brutally intense letter. So I'm just warning you, the text is very poignant and like a punch from Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed. Uh, so just know that it's pretty sharp, it's pretty piercing, and um, a little bit mysterious because Thyatira is the least significant of the seven cities and the city we have really have the least information about. So it's a little bit mysterious in there and what's what's there because uh, we don't have as much knowledge about the city as we do the other, the other ones. So uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that your blood is good. And unlike the myth of Achilles, Lord, you don't dip us in your blood by the ankle where one part of us does not get covered. We now have this weakness. Lord, you cover us whole and complete. When you save Jesus, you don't save in part, you save fully. Lord, and how grateful I am that it is truly on the basis of your grace. It is your goodness and loving kindness that drives your heart for salvation. And you, Lord, you don't um, sacrifice you don't sacrifice even a speck of your holiness, your righteousness, your justice. Because, Father, you poured out every bit of it for my sin on Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, your word is clear that you took your blood and you offered it before the Father. So, Holy Spirit, I am grateful that at five and a half, or actually before five and a half, you began working and stirring and piercing and bringing conviction. When I could offer you nothing. And that's true for every one of us in this room who've responded, Lord. And may we remember that the truth is, God, we still cannot offer you anything. But you are worthy of our offering the entirety of our being. For that is our spiritual and acceptable form of worship. So, Father, may we be people who love you with all of our being because you first loved us. If there are any in this room or watching online that somehow really do not know you, their faith is not resting in you, Jesus. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would trouble them with the kindness of your conviction. That they would not walk in any kind of guilt, shame, or fear. What would people think if I come forward now? Jesus, may they just may they just respond to the goodness of your salvation. Father, because if there is anyone in that situation, if they respond to you in salvation you're not going to be ashamed of them in heaven. It's going to be a party. Lord, we want people to know you. You are life. You are the way. You are the truth. Jesus, it's to you we look, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.